Thank you, Glenn. Good evening once again, everyone. It's good to see you along tonight. We trust the Lord will bless our, our time together. Now, tonight we'll actually bring to a conclusion our little series that we had on good questions that people ask us. You'll remember that the, the idea of these studies is really has the idea of, of people who have no uh, background in assemblies, and they come into our buildings, and oftentimes they ask questions. And we were trying to look at some of those questions in the course of these four studies. So the uh, first question that oftentimes people ask is, what denomination are you? And we tried to handle that on our first session. Then we looked at the question, who is your pastor? Which is often a very good question people ask when they come amongst us. And uh, last week we had the, the privilege of speaking about the priesthood of believers and am I a priest? And uh, I, I just really enjoyed that study in particular. And uh, I, I, James came to talk to me after the meeting, the, the, man, the man we've just been praying about to be saved. Um, I, I, the way he spoke to me on, on Wednesday night last week, I thought, man, something really dawned on his heart uh, that evening. So I'm just hoping to hear news in days to come that he's actually trusted the Lord and I think what really hit him was the idea that God's presence was shut up to us and we were outside and he was holy. And, and because of the death of Christ, God has flung open the gates into his presence and welcomed sinners in uh, on the grounds of the work of Christ. And, and that, he said, for the first time was very clear to him. So we just continue to pray that the Lord would use what was spoken for his glory and would encourage us as the people of God as well. Now, tonight we're going to look at another subject. Uh, this is men and women in the Bible. Is there a difference in the Christian assembly? And so we want to look a little bit at gender distinctions. What does the Bible teach about men and women in the assembly? And um, how do we understand these things in, in the day where we live, where things have changed in many, many ways? And so I want to just outline a few things of the purpose of this Bible study and I, I trust that this will all be received in the spirit that's given. The main purpose of this study is to produce a well-balanced practical Bible-based argument in support of headship and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. I recognize that the subject can be a thorny one and the easiest route would be just to ignore it completely and avoid it and um, uh, that's always a temptation for speakers when it comes to looking at different passages. We sometimes bounce around passages that are a bit diff more difficult to handle. Uh, but I think we need to be, to, to, to be honest with the Lord and handle all these subjects as they come across our path. And this is one of them. How, If you have never heard a sermon or Bible teaching based upon the subject of headship, I would ask that you just keep, please, please keep an open mind. And if, after this talk this evening, you decide that it is not necessary to practice headship or its symbolism, uh, I will still love you and respect you. And I, I hope that will still be the case in our situation as well. I left my hard hat at home. I didn't bring it along. I'm anticipating a very positive experience this evening. Now, there's some things we need to note right away. And we need to establish this right at the beginning so that we don't make the mistake of, of uh, misinterpreting the Word of God. We must remember that when we get into the idea of genders in the Bible, we must always remember this, that all believers are priests before God and have equal access into God's presence. We're all saved on the same grounds, and genders are equal before God but have different roles. And uh, that's what we're going to look at again tonight. So I'm going to break up our little study this evening into three ways. First of all, the rules regarding leadership and headship. And then we're going to talk about the rules regarding corporate preaching and teaching. And then some objections uh, discussed. So there are different objections to some of the things that, that uh, are normally presented in assemblies. And we want to just handle some of those discussions uh, try to anyway so first of all before we identify what headship really does mean and in regard to sisters and and 
you know, I, I, I just maybe I should say this first. I think that there has been a mistake in the way, in the last 50 years, the way we have approached the First Corinthians chapter 11 in particular. I, th- I think it has probably um, resulted in uh, a focusing in on the role of sisters. And I think that probably is not really the emphasis that is found in 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to look at that in a moment. I'll try and prove that to you. But I think this is all sort of a knee-jerk reaction to some of the uh, women's lib arguments that are in the world today. And we, in many ways, the pendulum swings the other way and we forget exactly what, what the real truth is. So, But anyways, let's first of all, what does it not mean? Now let's get this clear. I've emphasized not so that we don't make a mistake here. Women are inferior to men. Now we know that's absolutely uh, untrue. Uh, women are stupid and should not be heard. Uh, let's be very clear. We, there's a lot of ladies who can way ahead of me from an educational background and even just a, a, a mind much clearer and better than mine. So we're not talking about that sort of things. Uh, Paul was a chauvinistic, woman-hating bachelor. And uh, that's oftentimes uh, people have actually presented that. I remember one time in this little, little, uh, in this high school in Maun. I used to go to the high school once a week, and we had a Bible study with a number of our believers. And in the little chapel that they used, there were often these Bibles that were just been laying around from previous groups. And I got there early one one time, and and uh, I opened up one of these Bibles, and and when it had reference to the idea of women. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, you know when, when Paul says, uh, "I command the women to be silent, not to preach." There was a pencil, and it scratched out the whole verse. And there were several passages that had to do with um, women being in subjection to men. They were all penciled out. And you know, I think a lot of that stems from this idea that some people actually think that Paul was a chauvinist, woman-hating bachelor. It is true that women were silent and veiled back then, but that was their culture, and it is okay now. now that's often an argument that we, we have presented. We are equal, so we are the same. That's often another one that is, is uh, presented. So that's what it does not mean. Now, let's try and understand what it does mean. The first thing that we understand, when it comes to dealing with God and seeing what he has done. When you think of creation, you think that God is a great God of order. There's absolute order in creation. You think of the, uh, the Old Testament and the tabernacle and the temple and the, the arrangement of everything and how everything was ordered and, and it was never left up to you know, man's, man's imagination. There was order in these sorts of things. The Bible says this, let all things be done decently and in order, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And William MacDonald, he says this, every well-ordered society rests on two supporting pillars. Authority, that's the first one, and submission to that authority. So these are two pillars that are established in every well-ordered society. And uh, this is what is known as headship in the Bible. Now, we're going to look a little bit at this, uh, at this just for a moment here. I want us to understand that the idea of headship is not something that is relegated to the sphere of man. That actually headship is actually practiced and, uh, and experienced in, in the Godhead himself, in divine persons. And we must remember that, uh, here's an example of it here, but I would have you to know that the head of Christ is God. Now, nowhere would we ever infer that because there is a subjection of one person to another, that that means that there must be inferiority. There isn't. And here we have an example of the Lord Jesus himself, who is co-equal and co-eternal with, 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 with God the Father, yet the head of Christ is God. There's no no. Uh, uh, question here about equality it's a matter of authority 
and submission. When it comes to society, for example, um, we have those two pillars again taught in the scriptures. Romans chapter 13, it says this, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. So we can see in the world that's around us, God has teaching for us as believers how we should interact with governments that are around us. These governments are not even Christian We're not talking about Christian governments. We're talking about non-Christian governments who may even be absolutely opposed to us as believers. There is still a responsibility for us to recognize that God has set them there. Uh, The powers that be are ordained of God. Submit yourselves, Peter says, to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of God of evildoers. Um, I'm, I'm really, really scared of some of the American politics, that the, the Christian politics that we see on, on the south of the border. And how I remember at one stage, uh, Karen and I had been to uh, Bob Jones University for uh, um, a um, graduation celebration of, of Andrew. It was the first, uh, first one we went to and Andrew was homeschooled. We used Bob Jones stuff. And, uh, and so we went to this big ceremony and Bob Jones III was speaking at this ceremony. And I, I, Karen and I just could not believe that this was actually supposed to be a Christian celebration. It was simply politics. And I said to Karen, I says, I is it possible to be, the, uh, be a Democrat and still be a Christian? Because if you are, you'd be completely uh, offended by what has been said in this, in this meeting today. And um, I, I really do think our American believers uh, are, are, have made an error in judgment in this. And they're so politically minded uh, that that has tainted a lot of their, their viewpoints. So... Um, we need to recognize that whether they're Republicans or Democrats or NDP or whatever the government might be, we have a recognition, we have a responsibility as believers to honor them still and to uh, give them the, the due reward that is theirs. That's society. In the home, these two pillars again are, are, are taught. They, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Um, you know... Uh, I sometimes speak to young people and, uh, you know, uh, I say to them, listen, if dad says you go to bed at 11 o'clock, you don't need to say, well, I'll pray about it. No, that's done. All right. Dad said it. End of story. Um, You see, there's there's a recognition here that God has set parents in the family as authority figures. And children have a responsibility to submit to them. That's always a battle, I know. The workplace is another one. Um, I know we don't have servants today uh, for the most part, but the principle still remains the same, whether you're an employee or not. Servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. See, this is the bottom line behind all of these things. When there is a recognition of authority, we recognize that there is somebody behind that person. And that person is God. And so we are not actually specifically being submissive to this individual, but we are submitting to God. I remember um, the story of, of, uh, of David in the cave. Do you remember? He was in the cave hiding in the darkness and... Uh, and Saul came in to go to the bathroom. That must be where they went in those days. Found a cave, and uh, Saul. What did he do? He or what did David do? He cut a piece of Saul's garment off. Um, and uh, afterward, you know, and while he was in the darkness in that cave, I forget who it was that was with David. He says, "Look at God brought your enemy right into your presence, man. Kill him, take him, you know." And I still remember the words that David said that he should not bring his hand against the Lord's anointed. Now, as unqualified as Saul was to be king, he was still king. And David recognized that he was the anointed of the Lord and that his time to be 
ruler would come in due time. He had to wait. So he recognized that he submitted to the king, even though he was completely unqualified and even tried killing him. But he recognized that God had put him in that place. Marriage is another uh, example of this. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So in the home, we have the same idea, authority and subjection. Does that mean the man is king? Not really. It means he's the head. It means he is responsible. That's the other thing that often I think we forget about when it comes to this idea of authority and submission. We're going to look at it in the next, uh, the next point here, I think. It comes up here yeah, in the assembly. Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give an account. Now, this is where I'm talking about. They must give an account. You see, if the elders in the assembly are uh, governing in a certain way, and I personally disagree with that, it really doesn't amount to a hill of beans. Because I am responsible to obey the elders that are given to me. Now, we're not talking about them to ask us to do things that are completely wrong. But I'm talking about gray areas where they, they, they have that responsibility to lead us as God's people. And we have a responsibility to submit to them. And the thing that we often forget is this. People who are in authority are not freelance people can do what they want they also must give an account and they will be held accountable I as a man in my home am going to be held accountable to the Lord as to how I behave as a husband and as a father in my home and the elders in this assembly with, they, they, they have the same fear that we are under shepherds answerable to, to the chief shepherd and we will be accountable one day so they watch for your souls uh, how's the verse go? Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. So, that's basically the... I, I, I think I've set the stage here that there are these two pillars there's authority and subjection to the authority. And what we're actually talking about that is headship. Now, when we come to the uh, Christian church, the assembly of, of God's people, I'm not referring to brethren assemblies. I'm referring to Christian churches from the day of Pentecost to the day that we live in. I, I'm just a simple guy, and I want to make a historical observation regarding the head covering in, 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 in groups of Christians in this period of time. 1950 years of history. From the time of the New Testament, through the time of the apostles, through the time of the early church fathers, until the 1950s, most Christian women wore head coverings in church services. Now, that was not based on tradition or culture or that sort of thing. That was based on what they felt was taught out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, I wonder, okay, in the 1950s, I mean, things have really changed. In the, in the last 50 years, there have been huge changes in society. Now, it's going to be a bit of a, it's, it's a little bit of a surprise. It was to me, too. I, I managed to find a video of a Billy Graham crusade in the 1950s. And I froze a couple of frames in that video just for us to see what was the attire of the ladies in the 1950s. Now, remember, I think the Billy Graham organization was probably a fair cross-section of evangelical Christian uh, um, community. Um, it wasn't specifically Christian brethren or brethren. It wasn't any particular group. It was a fair cross-section of evangelical Christians uh, in that period of time. So the cross-section of evangelical Christianity, this was a, one of the freezes that I've taken. Now it's pretty hard to, to see that, but I'm going to zoom in a little bit here and you can see the attire of the ladies that they, they all were a head covering. They all did. And, um, 
you know, this, this is not in the Brethren Conference or anything. This was Billy Graham Crusade. This was the behavior of the Christians for the last, you know, 1950 years. So, my question is this. Why the change? What took place in the last 50 years? Was there some new revelation that we received? Um, is, is there something that we were missing or is there some further enlightenment or, or what really is the difference why have we, why have we made changes like that and um, well I think probably this is the big answer to that question the feminist movement in the 1950s um, the feminist movement well prior to that even uh, but you, you know there was a lot of good that came out of it and and the feminist movement brought about many positive changes, and, and, and I think we need to recognize that, and uh, we don't need to write this all off. We're talking about something that was right. They did what was right. They rose, they, they brought awareness to, to the need for protection of women and girls from domestic violence, and they did a number of things that they did that were very, very positive, and this is one of the things that came up to, to the light and, and was very helpful. And then there was also the awareness of, of employment discrimination, that many women who were just as qualified as men were, were paid small wages compared to men. And that was unfair. It was wrong. It was discriminatory. And the Women's Lib movement brought this to the forefront, and they, they, they marched for this. And they did a great job in, in bringing this to our, our awareness and to our conscious. And so equal work must receive equal pay. But others are not good. Other things that they did bring to the forefront, and we're talking probably more about the more radical feminists, but this is really what what is really uh, given rise to the age of feminism is, is abortion on demand and uh, a right for a woman to choose and uh, and she can terminate her pregnancy if she wishes. And this has now been the law of the land for many years. And this is a result of, of, of what took place in the women's lib movement. And I believe it is an absolutely horrific, horrific thing to think what actually happens to these unborn children. Abortion on demand. The promotion of lesbianism is also something that is one of the cornerstones of militant um, uh, of uh, this idea of promoting women's rights and women's, women's uh, lib. And then there's the rise of feminist theology that has become quite popular. And some of our most popular television preachers and teachers are, are often women nowadays. That was completely unheard of in recent years. But their agenda is to remove the teaching of headship from the Bible and to rewrite the scriptures in many ways and to do away with this, this wonderful teaching of headship. And so I think if we understand that is some of the reason that has happened and why some of the changes have taken place, it does maybe help us understand why things have happened the way they are. Now I'm going to read just a few passages from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this evening. This is going to be our our foundation for what we're going to be talking about. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you didn't bring your Bible, that's fine. It'll all be up front for us. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. And I'm just going to jump ahead to verse 10. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, I want to look at the subject of headship from this verse in particular. In this verse, we have actually four persons that are mentioned here, but I want you to know that the head of every man 
is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, the head of Christ is God. So we have these four individuals, these four persons mentioned in this, in an order. Now, keep in mind that we're not talking about inequality again. I just want to hammer that home. And sometimes we make the mistake of assuming, for instance, when we refer to the Holy Spirit, we refer to him as the third person of the Trinity, as if he is of less authority and power and of importance than the other first two persons. That's not true. But here we do have an order that God has established, not myself. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. The head of Christ is God. So there you have those four persons and the head of each one of those persons. Now every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Now... I want you to notice that this verse comes before the verse regarding ladies. This has to do with men. And I do think that this is the most important part of this chapter. It's verse 4. Oops, sorry. Let me go back here. Um, The biggest change that this passage made on the first century believer was not to the women but to the men and I want us just to lay hold of that I think we're missing that we really are missing that we think chapter 11 is all about the women it's not it really isn't the biggest change that this passage made on the first century Christian was not the women was not to the women but it was to the men every man praying or prophesying having his head covered dishonors his head Now that was revolutionary. For a man to pray with uncovered head was unheard of. That was revolutionary. For a woman to pray with a covered head was nothing new. That was nothing out of the ordinary. That always took place. But something now that was really new and different was the fact that a man for the very first time has been told to take off his hat in God's presence. Now, I have my ideas why that might be. I'm going to try and put that across to you now. In uh, 1 Corinthians 11, you have this, this, this verse here. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God. And I want us just to focus in on that phrase, the image of God. Man is the image of God, referring to the male, the man. All right? Um, Now, that links us back to Genesis, doesn't it? So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Now, we have that same phrase again, the image of God. Now, in what way was man created in the image of God? In what specific way was the man created in the image of God? He was placed on the earth as God's representative to assume authority and leadership and to have dominion over the earth. That was his responsibility. And that was, in in my view, that is how he was created in the image of God. He was there as the authority. He was there to subdue the earth. He was there to have dominion over it. And so, when it comes to this thing about Adam, when Adam fell, he failed as God's representative. He failed as God's representative. The image in which he was initially created was now seriously marred. What God initially had planned for Adam as his image, as his representative on the earth, has been seriously marred and destroyed when he turned away God, turned his back upon God, and he willingly sinned. So the image that we have, men have been created in, has been marred. And I think, as a result of the fall of man, he covered his head when entering God's presence. Now this is conjecture. This is Sid Hall's bend, okay? This is my theory. 
and you can go away from here thinking I'm crazy. That's fine. But, but listen, uh, let me try and prove it to you. The idea of covering your head shows respect. It shows... Um, it, 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 it just shows deference to the person in whose presence you are in. And I don't know when it first started that men went into God's presence with a head covering. I don't know when that took place. But I do know it was at least during the days of Moses. Because in the days of Moses, you know that the high priest and, uh, and the priests, they wore head coverings, didn't they? When they went into the temple and into the tabernacle, they had specific headgear that they had to wear on their head when they went into God's presence. They were not permitted to go into God's presence without this. So I don't know how much earlier than this. I, my, my conjecture is this, is that it was always from the fall. Men went into the presence of God to pray. They always would have covered their head somehow. So now the good news. This, is, this is, to me is, it puts a whole new spin on this idea of, of the headship in 1 Corinthians 11. When Christ came, he restored that which he took not away and restored man to the place that God had initially planned for him. Christ fulfilled and accomplished where Adam failed. And so when you and I as New Testament Christian men, when we have trusted in Christ, we are now viewed in Christ and now we are back, we are restored to where we were as Adam's original uh, um, uh, how he was originally created as the image of God now I have a, a verse here that sort of links this a little bit and there's some interesting parallels between Colossians here about Christ and the work of, and the role that Adam played in the Garden of Eden in whom, the re, in whom we have redemption through his blood even the forgiveness of sins who is the image of the invisible God? Now this is Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. We have that expression here again, don't we? The image of God. Now Christ is that wonderful image now. Far better than what Adam could ever, ever present. And it says here that Christ was the firstborn of every creature. Now interesting here, the firstborn of every creature going back to Genesis the creation right and and you know what the word firstborn it it doesn't mean literally to be the firstborn because Christ wasn't born wasn't he he always was but the the title firstborn is used really to designate a place of superiority and supremacy and that was really the title that has been given to Christ and that was really the role that Adam should have been fulfilling as the one who was to have the authority on the earth. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. You see, when God created the world for Adam, or when he created the world, he gave it to Adam. Adam was the federal head. He was the one who was to subdue it. He was to govern it. He was responsible for it. And he blew it. He failed. And because of that, his image was marred. And thus comes Christ along. And he fulfills it in a tremendous way. And now, as you and I, as men in Christ, we have now been restored to that place. A wonderful, wonderful privilege. Now, if you went to Israel today, this is what you would find. Um, Jewish law requires men to cover their heads as a sign of respect and reverence for God when praying, studying Torah saying a blessing or entering a synagogue now that's from the guide to Jewish religious practices when we were in Israel we went to the western wall just like these guys here and uh, I don't know if anybody here who's been there before but you know what you're a Gentile doesn't matter you come to that wall, they're going to give you a skull cap. 
They won't let you there unless you have a skull cap on. They want the men to cover their heads when they're going into these places. Any of the synagogues, you'll be given a skull cap. Any of these uh, holy places, you'll be given a skull cap. And men have to wear this thing. And, they, and, and here's an example of, of Jewish men who have not enjoyed the liberty and the blessings that we have in Christ. They are still doing what I believe Jews did for time immemorial. From the time of the garden, they entered God's presence covering their head when they prayed. And so here they, you can see them at the wall here. Some of them just had the, the, um, the skull cap. Some had the, the talith as well. And, um, and the women as well also covered their head. Now, that, this is not unusual. They did that all the time. All the women did that. But that's what I'm saying is that the, the revolutionary teaching in 1 Corinthians 11 made no changes to the sisters. Because they always did cover their head. But the real change was to the men. Can you imagine? For thousands of years, men have always covered their heads when they went into God's presence. And now for the first time, Paul says, take that off. We're in Christ now. What a wonderful thing. Uh, Precious truth. I'm enjoying it. I don't know about you, but I think it's great. So why the head covering? The headship of man... And the subjection of woman has been God's order since the creation of the world. Man's uncovered head and woman's covered head is a silent witness to God's order. Now, you know, we live in a society and and an age now where we don't like to put on, we don't like ceremonies for the most part. We don't like symbolism. Um, we find that archaic, it's old-fashioned, it goes along with uh, the state churches and all the, you know, the shrines and all that sort of stuff. And, and I get that. But let us remember that there are certain symbols that are important to God, regardless of what the world thinks. Bread and wine on the Lord's Day morning are symbols. And we wouldn't think of changing those symbols. Those symbols are, are important to God. And so the head covering also. The world shows little regard for God's order in the roles of men and women. The Christian New Testament assembly is the place where God's order is restored, recognized, and respected. It is a place where the glory of God is unveiled. And man's glory is veiled. So, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. Now, we'll leave the head covering now for a few moments. This, um, I'm gonna, I've got a fair bit of material yet, so let me just go into this. This is in regard to preaching and teaching and public speaking. Um, Paul said this to Timothy. He says, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, I want us to understand that when he referred to the men in this passage, this is the term for masculine. Uh, this is the men. It hasn't, it's not the word for mankind. It's for the males is really what he's, he's teaching here. So he desires, therefore, that the males pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And then later on in the chapter, he says this regarding the ladies. He says, let the women, and that is definitely the women, uh, learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. So these are instructions from the Apostle Paul in regard to the role of sisters and men in the Christian assembly. Now, you know, uh, uh, oftentimes I wished I was a woman. I didn't have to open my mouth and I could just be quiet. And maybe many of you would wish I was a woman too, that I didn't have to open my mouth. But, but you know, there is responsibility with this. We as men need to step up to the plate. We have a responsibility to, to lead. We have a responsibility to to bring our voices, make our voices heard. And not just any voice, but it has to be a voice that is backed up by the Spirit of God. We need to know what we're talking about that's based on the Scriptures. Now, the easiest thing is just be quiet. But that's not our responsibility. We have to do that. 
And just as the men are required to be vocal, it is also required of the sisters not to be. Does that mean they don't have anything to say? No. Does it mean they're not, that, they, that they're not better Bible scholars? No. It doesn't mean that at all. And there are avenues and there are formats when we can really benefit from the, the blessing of sisters and their knowledge of the scriptures and the experiences that, that they've had. And so there are formats for that, but not when it comes to the whole assembly meeting together. I'll talk about that in just a moment. So in summary, all believers are priests and have equal access into God's presence. God designed the genders to complement each other in the assembly, each fulfilling their distinct role. So this is God's design, and it's a wonderful design. And, you know, when you have been part of this for 50, 60 years, some of you have been in the assemblies forever, and it's old hat to you, and it's not unique, and it's just, you know, we've always done it. And you know what? This is a really, really unique, cool, different way that any of the other churches have, have not seen. And when they come, oftentimes they're just impressed with your the way you do things. And I think we need to be more impressed with the way we do things because they are really based on the scriptures. And we need not be ashamed of them. And we need to be just thankful to the Lord for what we have and, and, and quietly go on in, 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 in obeying them. So, some questions. Was this not just a cultural thing? Now, that's often uh, thrown up, you know. Well, you know, back in the Jewish, those Jewish Christians, that's what they did. We're American Christians here. We're Canadian Christians. We have our own culture. We'll do it our way. What about the woman's hair? Isn't that the covering? Uh, when should the covering be worn? Won't we make visitors feel uncomfortable if we all practice the head covering and people come in, ladies come in, and they're not, they don't have a head covering on? Okay, let's look at these questions. The first one is this. Was this not just a cultural thing? No. Just simply no. It's not true. The reason Paul gave this was the order of creation. That was the reason he gave it. It had nothing to do with culture whatsoever. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. And the Lord God said, Let it, uh, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. So this has got nothing to do with culture. It has to do with the order of creation. What about the woman's hair? Is that the covering? I don't believe so. Unless one sees that two coverings are mentioned in this chapter, the passage becomes hopelessly confusing. If we believe that when Paul referred to the veil, that he was actually referring to the, to the lady's hair, then we have to be consistent in, in, in following that, that uh, interpretation. And if you do you soon begin to find out how silly it actually sounds. If we take hair to be the covering, then verse 6 would, make, would not make any sense. Verse 6 says this, For if a woman is not covered or veiled, let her also be shorn. Now, this would mean that if a woman does not have her hair on, if you're taking the covering as her hair, then she might just as well be shorn. But this is impossible. If she does not have her hair on, she could not possibly be shorn. So it doesn't make any sense if you want to be clear in how you're going to interpret this passage. Now, it becomes even more interesting and comical, I guess, if you wanted to look at it this way. If we take hair to be the covering, then verse 4 would read something like this. Now, remember, we have to follow through and to be consistent. It would refer to the men as well. Every man praying or prophesying having his head covered dishonors his head. Now, if we're talking about hair as being the covering, it's saying this. This would mean that if a man prays or prophesies with his hair on, he dishonors his head. Again, this does not make any sense. How can a man take off his hair 
and put it on again. I, 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 I don't see that possible unless you wear wigs or something, but that's just uh, wasn't part of the argument that the Apostle Paul had in mind. So when should the covering be worn? And this is probably where there's maybe a little bit more um, diversity in our uh, opinion. What about the gospel meeting? Um, you know, the, uh, oftentimes we have, like, the family Bible hours considered our gospel service. Um, what about Sunday school? Um, home Bible studies? Um, when should the covering be worn? There's a, there's a phrase that is often used, or not often, but a phrase that pops up in 1 Corinthians. And it, it, it goes like this. When you come together as a church, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18. Now, what does that mean? When you come together as a church. In other words, this is really a meeting of the entire assembly. It doesn't mean the whole assembly will be there, but it is the meeting that the whole assembly is expected to be at. We would be, it's not like... It's not like the 59ers group or, or a young people's group. This is a meeting where the whole assembly has been invited and, and we would like to see them there. All right. Um, therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place, this is another expression that you have together, whole church coming together in one place. If there is no interpreter, let him keep silence in church. In other words, in church capacity. Um, the principle is this, and this is this is where I this is what I believe, and I may differ from you in this in this area. Whenever the assembly is gathered together for Bible teaching, for worship, and prayer in church capacity, the men should be uncovered, taking part audibly, and the women should be covered and silent. Now I believe that, and. And I know that there's a variety of opinion on that. And, and, and like I said, I all love you and respect you if you disagree with me. That's fine. But I do think we have to be... be uh, we've seen the other extreme as well. Um, Cape Town is a... I think your culture, brother, has, has gone the other extreme, if you don't mind me saying so. Um, in the colored community in Cape Town... And maybe this wasn't the case when you were there, but this is how it is now. Um, we've gone to restaurants with uh, different families who culturally, they're, they're from a colored background. And um, when somebody's going to give thanks for the food in the restaurant, um, the ladies are squirming around, squirming, looking for, and, and they'll grab a serviette or, or whatever and put it on their head as the man gives thanks for, for, for the meal. Do you remember that? Yeah. And you see, I don't believe that to be what the Bible teaches, but I'm, I'm not judging them. That's, that's their position. Um, we also are having a conflict in, in our assembly uh, just now in, in, in Hebron in that someone has suggested that our young people's group, that our sisters should have a head covering then and, and be silent. And I've opposed that, absolutely. I don't believe that to be what the Bible teaches. And I think it, it has made a mistake. But I do believe that when the corporate assembly meets together, that that is when we function in this way. And, 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 and that is just something that I believe. Now the question is, won't we make visitors feel uncomfortable? Possibly. But most would be quite happy to follow what we do without any objection. I think where the mistake is, is if we are inviting visitors, sisters, or Christian, or, or, or even just ladies coming to our, our services, and if they're not told in advance that, listen, when you come, you'll probably find most of the ladies will have a veil or a scarf on, um, then they would feel probably more offended, not offended, maybe not, uncomfortable, because they don't want to stick out. They just want to blend in with the rest of you. And my, our youngest son, Nicholas, uh, his girlfriend, she comes from an alliance background, and she has no idea of what the headship is and head covering. When we were 
they came down to Christmas, at Christmas time to Florida when we were there. We took them to the assembly, and um, and all the ladies had their heads covering on. It was a breaking of bread meeting, and and uh, she wished that Nicholas had told her that that that's what they do because she would have gladly done that just to blend in. You see, so. When an inquiry is made, it gives great opportunity to to speak about the authority of God's word and and to and to remember the words of First Peter, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So, gender distinction in the Christian assembly. Important note, I just want to bring this out again. All believers are priests before God and have equal access into God's presence. Genders are equal before God but have different roles. The roles regarding leadership and headship, the roles regarding corporate preaching and teaching. Thank you very much for your kind patience listening to me badgering on here. And we just pray that the Lord would give us all a gracious spirit as we look at some of these things and, and that we'd learn from them and uh, go forward. And, and I don't think any of us have got all the answers. I certainly don't. And I've got lots to learn too. But I think it's good for us just to go back to some of these things and visit them and enjoy them and appreciate them and value them because God values them. And we need to do so as well. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we just humbly approach you this evening just to thank you for the Lord Jesus. We're so thankful, Father, for what he has done, redeeming mankind, restoring that which he took not away. We thank you, Father, for the place that you have placed us. We thank you for the principles that we see in your word. And Lord, we ask thee just to Speak to our hearts. Challenge us, Lord. Help us to obey your word, even when it's not popular with those that are outside. And we pray, Father, that you would keep us humble as well. And help us, Lord, just to quietly give an answer to those that are seeking the answers to their questions. We do thank thee, Lord, for these four sessions that we've enjoyed and We ask thee, Lord, just to bless your word and grant that it would bring honor and glory to your son's name. We ask thee, Lord, to to bless us tonight as we pray in Jesus' name.